Well, I have to tell you, the most important thing to me personally is when I hear someone else tell me that I don't have a big ego. I mean, that's, you know, that's really important to me. <laughs> well played. <laughs> that's that's an ego joke right there. I guys. get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we need we need a a, a rim shot sound. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Lead.exe. We've got uh, all sorts of uh, information we're going to send your way that is chock full of goodness to help you hack the leadership code. Kick it off, John. Sure. Thanks, guys. How's everybody doing today? Delightful. I'm doing good, man. <laughs> we're, we're, we're pumped for season four, right? We've got mm-hmm. a lot of great stuff coming up, and uh, this is kind of going to be... Uh, episode one of season four i think unless you guys think differently no it sounds hey, good let's to me. take it episode okay. one so i go. think uh we talked a little bit about a topic for today um which i think is a good for a good for a kickoff episode of a new season uh as we continue to iterate on the podcast and hopefully be uh make it better and better as we go um i'm not sure if my recent addition to the cast uh is helping in that regard but you know i'll do my best um, no, but John, the idea see, see, you got to get more, you got to get more buzzwordy instead of iterate. You got to go ideate, <laughs> right? You, you got to do the design oh, yes, yeah. game thing, right? That's, that's synergy right now. So we need to just ideate, multiple ideate, 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 ideate. Okay. Yeah. See, and we got to do that, right? We need, we need to, to well, we'll do that with our next sprint on the Kanban. We need to make it actionable. Make sure. Yeah. Actionable. <laughs> <laughs> okay well we're definitely not more effective than we were last year but uh <laughs> okay um okay season anyway. four is off to a great start yeah so we uh <laughs> so welcome to season five we're just going to throw out season four and go right to <laughs> uh the season four kickoff uh, i thought it would be nice to talk about um a concept that's that's repeated by a number of people i read it most recently uh from an author I'm, I'm prone to quoting, uh, Stephen Covey from the seven habits of highly effective people. Um, the principle that private victories, uh, precede public victories. Um, so this concept of learning to lead ourselves, um, before we can lead others, um, and continuing to lead ourselves, uh, as we go through our leadership journey. Um, so I thought that'd be a good thing to talk about. And, uh, maybe one way to would talk or uh, to kick this conversation off rather would be, uh, hearing from each of you guys, what, what are some ways that that you lead yourself, um, and and how do you think that makes you a better leader for the teams that you're put in charge of? I'll go to Brian first because he's nodding profusely. <laughs> it's just because I'm nervous, John. You put me on the spot. You know, I'm uncomfortable like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> no, you, that's you, I... you guys have the same haircut, so you just gotta you know, sticking with the guy with the same haircut, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I'm All not right. really sure who I'm looking at when I'm looking at, at the video. <laughs> It'd really messy up if I grew a goatee. There you go. So uh, yeah, I want to see. I want to see you grow a goatee now. Oh dear, I can't do it because my wife says it makes me look evil. <laughs> no comments. Well, no, no, we've had that sidebar. Go, go ahead. Brian, and, uh, That's right. Answer, answer John's question there. 
Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so areas that uh, that I sort of try to strive in, you know, for my own personal growth. I mean, I'm always working on something. In fact, I I, I tend to rotate out books. Uh, you know, I, I I tend to go from something that's uh, fiction to nonfiction to personal growth. And you know, sometimes that may be a leadership book. Sometimes it may be a you know self help book. Whatever it is. All of those things that can help elevate my own self-awareness, that's that's kind of critical to who I am. But um, something I think you both know about me, I'm also a daily meditator, right? So that's been something that's been in my practice, not 100% consistently, you know, but um, for about 30 years, it's something that, that I've done, you know, routinely. And I, I do believe that meditation it's uh it, it has uh a lot of benefits that sort of transcend what i think a lot of people uh, sort of perceive about it uh you know that it's some kind of spiritual practice uh that could be true for me it's more uh, a practice of getting clear right having having mental clarity um i i used to do a little exercise for about 5 minutes before i'd even go into a meeting especially if i was a presenter just so that I could, you know, get my heart rate down, uh, you know, have a really steady rhythm of breathing and actually not even think about anything. So part of, uh, part of the practice of meditation is, you know, not actually having any necessary thought that is a, a central focus to what you're doing. It's just counting your breaths. Now that can be different if you've got something like a mantra and that's the thing that you're focusing on. But the, the point is to not focus on the constant mental chatter that tends to be always going on in the background of all of our minds. Um, and I, I tried explaining it to a friend of mine who asked me, you know, what's the benefit of meditation? And I told him, you know, if you, if you took a, a glass of water, and you sprinkled a little bit of salt into it, and then you stirred up that glass of water, that's like your mind just as it sort of always is, right? You're, you're always on, you've always got, uh, you know, ideas and thoughts and, you know, things that are on your mental to-do list that are constantly swirling around. And each one of those things grabs your attention, right? Even if it's only temporarily. What what meditation for me does is it allows that stirring to stop and everything to settle. And even if it's just briefly, then it opens the door for some mental clarity so that when you do go into something like a, a meeting or a presentation that you have to lead, you're in a calm state, right? You're not all scrambled up with these things that um, could be distracting, distracting to you. Um, but you know, can also take away from your ability to communicate clearly and effectively. So reducing noise, and that would be one of the pillars that you would tie it to, right? Good. I would say you did a little uh, increase in clarity there as well. So uh, <laughs> I want to I dig into that a little bit. I think it's a, a good topic, and then we'll, we'll put Nick on the spot. Nick better have a really good answer because he's had time to think oh. about it now. Uh, but. So, Brian, it sounds like um, establishing some sort of a regular meditation practice for you, um, you might put that in the bucket of a private victory, right? That's something that you do on your own, um, personal growth. Uh, it helps you. Uh, 
what sorts of public victories do you think that's translated into for you or that you can tie back to that that private work that you do yeah one one area so let me comment first on part of what you just said there john so you know i view it for my own routine the same way that i view regular exercise right so um actually you know making sure that you carve out a little bit of time even if it's just 10 minutes a day or even if it's five minutes late in the afternoon after you're done with meetings for the day or whatever it is just having that consistency where it's part of you know your routine um I, I, to me having that mental exercise is as important as physical exercise so how that translates into some of the public victories so for example you know i've led a lot of teams and typically you know you're going into a one-on-one the way that I've always structured the one-on-ones with my direct reports is it's their meeting, right? It's not my meeting, it's their time with me. And so my request to them is to prepare the agenda and come to me. And sometimes what that means is that, you know, I've gotta be mentally prepared to be responsive. And that starts with some active listening. So I can't just be sitting there, you know, having in mind, the next thing that I want to jump on to, you know, to say in response to a comment that someone's making to me, I, I really need to listen to understand, you know, where are they coming from? Kind of what's their emotional state? You know, is there a psychological attribute attached to, you know, kind of what they're experiencing on a behavioral level? Um, you know, where is the real challenge, especially if they're having a hard time identifying it? Sometimes a direct report comes to you and they know they're having problems and they don't really know how to identify specifically where the challenge is. And so from a leadership perspective, I think it's important to have the mental clarity to listen and to apprehend that information in a way that you can then meaningfully respond. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's a good answer. And I, I think, um, you know, you, you alluded to the in- reduced noise piece earlier and, um, you know, I've, I've gone over the foundational things that I have for, for my management slash communication style before, but increase clarity, reduce noise, build trust and save people time. Um, I've been kicking around lately that it, reduce noise maybe should come first, you know, um, increase clarity, reduce noise, maybe flows off the tongue a little bit better, but reduce noise, increase clarity. I think if you think of them as building blocks on one another, um, it sounds like you're taking that time to reduce the noise in your own head or in your own life. Um, allows you to go into a conversation with a one-on-one or before a presentation, not only with that sense of clarity of what you're trying to accomplish, but to even perhaps provide some of that clarity uh, for the person with whom you're communicating or leading. Um, That, of course, builds trust and ultimately saves time. So uh, I think that's a great example of of internal work, private victories uh, turning into public victories. That's, That's a really good example. Thanks, Brian. All right, Nick. Yeah, hey. Can I just can I just follow on yeah, one, one sure, point please. with that, John? Because I, I I do I like let, yeah. how you Sorry. sort of you know encapsulated that. No, no it's okay. Um, you know, it, it just occurred to me as you were saying that. I, I think for me, part of the effectiveness of what that technique means for me is that I recognize the absence of it pretty dramatically. Right? Like if I don't have that time, I notice that. It, you know, it, it's kind of like a bump in the road for my day. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I remember, um, 
you know, studying a lot of different techniques. It wasn't until I read, it was, it was actually a, a biography about the Beach Boys and Mike Love, right? The, the lead singer for the, for the Beach Boys. He talked about studying transcendental meditation with uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and th that one of the techniques that Maharishi taught him was you really don't need much time for this. Actually, what you need is you just need enough time to count to 10. And so what that can mean is you might be in an office and you know, you've got a call. And so if you can just straighten up your back and sit in a good posture, put your hands on your knees, close your eyes, breathe in, count one, breathe out, count two and get up to 10. That's all the time it really takes, right? To just create sort of that, uh, biorhythmic feedback for yourself that helps like steady your heart rhythm, get yourself to a place of mental clarity and, uh, and, and help you personally be more effective. Thank you for letting me share that. <laughs> that's, that's great. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, another Stephen Covey thing, I think it's him, uh, is one of the things that makes us uniquely human. He talks about the word responsibility and he breaks it into two things, you know, the, the ability to respond. Um, and what, one of the things that makes us uniquely human is that we, unlike a lot of animals, um, have the, have the clarity of mind or the, the ability to put a gap between that stimulus and response, right? So A happens, B, I have the ability to respond in a way that I want, as opposed to just fight or flight, like a deer in the woods might, you know? Um, so I think what you've talked about details that pretty well, giving yourself that space to respond appropriately to a given situation or stimulus. So really awesome stuff. Thanks. Respond, respond Nick? versus react. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I exactly. Mean, how am I supposed to follow that up? <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, I mean, Brian just had a whole monologue there on a, a ton of stuff. Uh -huh. I agree. Um, but w when I go back to your thing and you asked your initial question, I instantly thought of um, that Jordan Peterson book, The 12 Rules for Life. And I believe it's that book. He has a rule in there. It's, it's one of the early ones, too, where it's like you should take care of yourself like you're someone who you're responsible for. Um, and I'm probably butchering that rule, but it's basically like you should take care of yourself like you're like you would if you're responsible for somebody else. Because a lot of times, and I know me included, sometimes in the past I had been stuck in, you know, like not taking care of myself, putting other people first. And and sometimes you have to do like Brian said, is you, you've got to work from the inside first and take care of yourself first. And for me, it's always been, uh, you know, like physical fitness, right? I, I need to work out in the morning. Um, I have to go do uh, our martial art. You know, there, there's something about being able to, to focus on yourself internally and be in those moments when you don't have to think really. You're just reacting to, to what's going on. Uh, allows you to have some kind of mental clarity and some space where, where you can kind of get stuff off your chest. And especially for, for me, and I don't know if this is like for you, John, but for the martial arts side, having that other outlet where you go somewhere else, you interact with other human beings, and half the time we don't even know what anybody else does, right? We're just all collectively together in this moment doing one of the same thing. And, and there's something gratifying about that, being able to just kind of, uh, you know, release any energy and just kind of be there in the moment. And I feel like having things like that 
uh, as a leader allows you the opportunity to come into situations with more of a clear head, right? You're not panicking right away as soon as you, you hear the news uh, of something terrible going on, right? You're just ready to react because you've kind of put yourself in those situations. So I would agree with everything Brian said, and I was never a huge fan initially of meditation. Um, until I started talking more with Brian and find out there's different things that can be considered meditation. So for me, like I used to do triathlon a lot and I would consider swimming the same thing, right? Swimming is one of those things when if you, especially if you do, you know, the, the, uh, freestyle or front crawl, they call it other places is like, you have your head in the water. You can't have headphones. You're just looking down at the pool and looking at the side and looking down and you just kind of hear the water and you hit, hit the waves. And it, it just allows you to have that that moment of clarity and uh, peace where we're not kind of inundated as much as we are today. We have phones and, you know, our phones are buzzing at us, our, our emails dinging, you know, I, I don't know about you guys. I can get a phone call my phone rings, my computer rings and like an iPad rings and then another computer rings. <laughs> so instantly I can be inundated. And, and I find having that release, that quiet time, that peaceful time allows me to come into uh, different situations with, with more, uh, clarity and, and more peace at mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all good stuff. And I, I think the, uh, the martial arts example is, is a good one and, and a nice segue into kind of where I wanted to sort of take this conversation. Uh, of course, I'm happy for it to go any direction because this is a fun exploration here, but, um, you know, martial arts is a good example of, uh, the private victory being, drill after drill after drill after drill and, and writing in your notebook, we trained this today and watching videos and doing all those things. Um, if we use this as a metaphor for, for performance at work or just general leadership um, before you get to the tournament, right? Uh, you can't, I think the way Covey puts it is you, you can't harvest a crop you didn't plant. So what are these things? You're, but, but the training isn't the fun part necessarily, you know, doing the drills over and over and over again, isn't the fun part sitting down and meditating um, especially at first when you're new to it or even later on, you know, I've been a meditator for a while as well. Um, it's not always fun. Sometimes it really sucks. Like you're sitting there, your mind keeps wandering, you're bored, all these things. Um, but it's learning to get over those things and, you know, nobody gets an award, um, and nobody gets praise and people don't sit down and just watch you meditate cause it's so great. Um, but the, that victory of, of doing that and having that self-control, um, facilitates your ability to perform in other aspects of your life. Um, and that's when you might get the accolades or, or be recognized for great performance. Um, but all the same, going back to martial arts, that's not the goal. You know, the goal is continual growth. Um, the goal isn't to, to get a trophy or to, you know, get a round of applause after your presentation at work um, necessarily. Those are, those are great things. Um, but when it comes to private victories preceding public victories, the goal is really your own personal self-improvement. Um, and then the other piece I wanted to add, you know, we've, we've talked about response versus reaction. Nick, I think you had a good point that giving yourself that space and, and that mental clarity so that you can react and you don't always have to think about it. Um, I think that's a great example of putting in the work and the drilling to keep going with this martial arts metaphor. You know, um, the first time you go to jujitsu, right. And somebody gets you in the mount, you freeze. What, what do I do? Right. Then that happens over and over and over again, and you start to realize, okay, well, here's the right response. And then and then there's this phase where you know what the right thing to do is, but your body doesn't quite catch up. And then after you do it long enough, you're doing things before you even have to think about it, and they're the right things to do. Um, so it's an interesting progression uh, from that aspect.
Yeah, and I would add something on to that, uh, just because I know we've talked about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a lot, but you, you could also just put this, think think just us as humans in general, and I have, and I'm sure you guys have, I've gone to go do something with a group of people, uh, signed up for something, and then kind of backed out of last minute, gave myself some reason why I couldn't do it, right? Maybe I got myself all the way to the door, and I was like, ah, you know what, I'm just not going to do it today. Um and it's that, you know, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations uh, and getting experience with doing that, whether it's martial arts or it's it's running a marathon or, um, you know, practicing meditating uh, can help carry over into your professional life and your leadership life. Right. As we get more experience with em- embracing the suck, as you guys say in the Marine Corps, right, John, embrace the suck. Right. Um, as you get more to that and you get more comfortable with uncertainty and pressure the easier you can react when those situations actually happen, which I find gives me more clarity uh, later on when it, when I'm put in that physical situation. I'm not the person who's freaking out. Like when a whole network goes down, it's like, okay, well, what, what, what what's their greatest need here right now? We got to do A, B, C, and D before we can do anything else. It's giving our space that opportunity to react, right? And that that's where, you know, we're talking about those uncomfortable situations and get you getting used to them, you do that on a personal level, but then can also help you um, in that leadership, that public level too, with your employees, right? If, if they see you not freaking out when the whole network's down, the whole architecture's, you know, blowing up and people are emailing saying they can't get stuff, um, and they just see you sitting there calm, I feel like it's a calming factor for other people too. It's like, hey, you know, he's not freaking out, so like, we, we don't need to freak out. We'll get this done. We'll get We'll get through it. So that's just all I wanted to add onto that too. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's a, a good but haunting metaphor. Yeah, you just want to just make sure you're not the one rearranging the deck chairs, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I agree with Nick on that. You know, I think it's important actually to have you know that sort of deliberate calm. Uh, especially, you know, in the midst of crisis. And it is a difficult thing to maintain um, because you do have a lot of things come in your direction, particularly in technology leadership. When you're dealing with something like an outage, there's nothing worse, especially when you, you know, get the hairy eyeball from the CFOs telling you you're losing $100,000 an hour, you know, with uh, with your downtime. It's it's more uh, than an inconvenience. It's a, it's a genuine business impact, right? So... That's a, that's a, that's a form of meditation in and of itself. Indeed. So, I want to take this in a little bit of a different direction then, um, and talk about ego. So, I think that's a natural thing with meditation. It, it really makes you think about yourself. Sometimes you get some uncomfortable thoughts about that thing you did or you said or the way you're acting, um, or you know something that happened to you maybe in the past. So. Um, what are your thoughts on private victories versus public victories in terms of ego? Um, and I, I want to go a little bit further on that in terms of, you know, your, your motivation for doing a given thing. Um, you know, do I want to be the calm guy playing the, playing the music as the Titanic sinking because I want to feel big and cool and, and be the go-to person about it? Or is it because it's the right thing to do? Um, and how do some private victories that you've had in your lives maybe, um, inform that question or inform the answer to that question. 
Well, I have to tell you, the most important thing to me personally is when I hear someone else tell me that I don't have a big ego. I mean, that's, you know, that's really important to me. <laughs> well played. <laughs> that's that's an ego joke right there. I guys. get it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we, we need we need a a, a rim shot sound. Yeah. Well, I, I think sort of the inverse of what you just asked is, you know, where do you operate from a space of humility, and that is a leadership characteristic that has always been one I've respected. In in particular as I've worked with other leaders that I've had to collaborate with very closely, you know, and sometimes you get someone who, uh, for whatever reason, they cannot operate from a place of humility and they've got to, you know, make sure that sort of they're constantly thumbing you down on, you know, any, any variety of things. Right. But when you, when you work with someone who you can tell is truly talented, truly experienced, truly knowledgeable, and they don't need to rub it in your face. They're just the, you know, operating in the same space that you are so that they can contribute to whatever is necessary to help resolve the issue or contribute some thought leadership or whatever it is. That's when it's easy to be able to identify humility, you know, and sort of in the absence of the, the standard ego practices. And I think humility comes with a lot of self-awareness. So as, as you continue to try to develop those things internally and, you know, for, for lack of a better term, you know, have like a no asshole rule with yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> you start to identify those things where it's like, oh, you know, actually the way that I said that or the way that I behaved, um, that could be interpreted, you know, pretty negatively by other people. And I, I, I don't want to have that kind of interpretation with my own behavior. Um, that kind of self-awareness then starts to drive who you choose to represent yourself as. And, and when I say that, I don't mean you're creating a false front. It's, it's actually the opposite. It's driving more into the authenticity of what it is that you can contribute to something. Um, because you know, the false front is often where we get the, you know, oh yeah, I can do that too. Or, you know, oh, did you know how important this thing is that I did? You know, and that's, that's where a lot of the, um, you know, the, uh, sort of lizard brain jumps in <laughs> because it, it needs that animalistic, you know, competitive, uh, feedback to feel satisfied. Yeah, no, I think it's a great answer. And I, um, you were mentioning earlier, you know, you know, when you're working with a true professional or somebody who's truly talented, et cetera. Um, I would add that in the terms of a private victory, it's also when you're working with somebody who's truly understands that they're not talented in a particular thing or that they don't have the experience in the particular thing and they're willing to learn. Um, and that's a private victory in and of itself. Um, and, and that's a vulnerable position to be in. Uh, you know, if, if, you know, Brian, you hire me or Nick, you hire me for a job and I don't quite know how to do a particular thing. I can fake it for a while. Right. <laughs> um, or if I faked it in the interview, uh, you know, this, this job requires the ability to speak Spanish. Yeah, yeah, sure. I can do that. First call with our international client and I can't, you know, it's going to come up really quickly. And that's, that's an obvious example. Right. But, um, but there are micro examples of that all the time. Hey, do you know how to handle this task? Whatever on the team, how to send this particular alert? Sure. Yeah. I know how to do that. And then, oh, wait, I really don't. Um, you have the humility to ask and to say that I don't know. 
Um, and maybe that's a public defeat. Maybe that's not a victory. Um, but the private victory is having the humility to ask and learn um, so that you can have that public victory later. Um, so I thought that was an interesting takeaway from what you were talking about, Brian. Yeah, I think from a leadership perspective, it's important to, uh, I think it's important to uh, be, you know, very upfront about the fact that you don't know everything. And part of the reason that you've assembled the team that you have, you have the leadership capabilities uh, to make that team effective. You might not necessarily have the leadership capabilities to know exactly how each of the individual roles is going to get their job done. And they're, you're going to have to be reliant on them to help skill you up so that you can effectively deliver a message, you know, further up the chain or whatever it is. I think I'd argue without the, the private victory to do that kind of personal growth and have that comfort in saying, I don't know, you'll never get, you'll, you'll at, at minimum or at best rather, you'll kind of peter principle out, right? You might rise to the level of your own incompetence, but then you're just going to be swimming in the deep blue sea and, and not really have a life raft for you. So, so we'll keep going with the Titanic metaphor. Uh, <laughs> but um, so that's all important stuff. Nick, it seemed like you had a thought and I kind of cut you off. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's fine. I, the only thing I want to touch on is I feel like the word ego gets a bad rap, right? Because um, when you think about it from a psychology term, ego just means self, right? So when, when we talk about having a big ego, you're, you're normally talking about a certain personality type, right? Um, you hear different things where people are like, oh, check your ego at the door. I can't check myself at the door. <laughs> like I, I go somewhere, I have a personality, right? Just like Brian has one and you have one. And I think it just touches on basically what Brian was saying. It's, it's about humility, right? And, and some self-awareness to go along with your ego. Your ego is there. It's always going to be there. Um, it's a part of who you are. And that, that's all I wanted to add to that conversation. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, ego is critical and, you know, ego is critical. You think of someone like, uh, you know, General Patton, you know, part of what made him an effective leader was that he had this towering presence and, and you know, that ego is representative of all of those internal things within his personality that gave him that kind of magnetism, right? Um, ego is, is absolutely necessary. It's, it's the unbridled ego, the, the type A personality. And you heard me reference it earlier, the lizard brain, right? It's the, the reptilian self that is just truly zero sum game, you know, competitiveness. Um, that's the portion of the ego that tends to get people into trouble. And ironically, I think the most frequently you see that uh, you know, give rise is when you've got someone that's got very deep seated insecurities. And so that it's the manifestation of ego in that way that is really truly putting the false front out there so that they can seem more sophisticated, more powerful, more important than they necessarily feel that they are themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll share a story on, on that topic. I, I once worked I won't name names or, or offices, but I, I once worked in a place with, with a gentleman who had, had some serious emotional intelligence issues and was constantly irritating people. He was a really, relatively high, um, highly paid, experienced person, retired military um, officer. And uh, it got to the point where the leader of that particular team 
arranged emotional intelligence training for the entire team, partly to help kind of save this one individual's ego. They didn't want to single him out. Um, and this person had the gall to say, well, I'm already very emotionally intelligent, so I don't need this. And just that statement alone, right? Not to mention the fact that the entire training was for this person, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it says a lot. So this person clearly hadn't done uh, the internal work. You know, there was probably, if you, this is an intelligent person, um, they could probably articulate what emotional intelligence was, what leadership was. Again, you know, they'd been a retired military officer. They, they knew by the book what leadership was, but that's all technique. That's all personality. It's not, it's not that deep intrinsic work that you need to do to really apply those things and those foundational building blocks. So I think that's one of the things that, that often gets left out in all this self-help leadership business literature um, is, you know, how to, how to, you know, just take life by the horns and go get it. And this, that, the other thing it's, there's the other side of that coin, coin, right? And, and sometimes we, we use these larger than life personalities like Patton or like, um, you know, Richard Branson or something, I don't know, pick a, pick a bombastic type leader. Um, and we forget two things. One is that they're not always that way. Sometimes those leaders know very well when to apply those techniques, when to be that way. Uh, and two, they're not without their faults. Um, who's to say that Patton, you know, I think Patton got demoted to Colonel like three times in his career or something like that. Right now, maybe you could argue that bureaucratically speaking, he was still right. Blah, blah, blah. There's a whole bunch of army nerds that'll, that'll pick that all apart. But the point is, being that way isn't always the right answer. So knowing what stimulus to apply to what situation um, is vitally important. And, and again, you can't do that. You can't know those situations um, without doing the, the nitty gritty private reflection, thinking about your own thoughts, meditating, um, screwing up a few times, and then genuinely asking yourself, you know, why did I respond that way to that situation? Why did I get angry? Why did I fly off the handle? Why did I treat that person that way? Why did that person treat me that way? Um, is there something I did that elicited that response from somebody else? And it's difficult. It's hard to look in the mirror um, and do those things. And sometimes it can even be painful, um, but it's really, really important. So one thing I wanted to My first response shift to gears that, a little bit, John. I think. Oh, sorry. John, Go ahead, John, please. I've got a response to that. So I was going to say my, my mm -hmm. first response is I didn't realize that you and I had worked at the same office before. <laughs> I think we've all worked at that office, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, my, my second response is, you know, the uh, I think the approach that you described that was taken also exhibits a degree of deficiency of leadership in and of itself. If if and what I mean by that is, you know, whenever you instantiate a policy that gets applied to a group that's really intended to address the behavior of an individual, that's the wrong kind of policy to put into place. I mean, the, there there was an opportunity for someone in a leadership role somewhere along the line to take that individual aside and say, now we're gonna be given this emotional intelligence training. And I'd like you to know, my expectation is that you're gonna be the first one to sign up because to be completely honest, you're the only one who seems to be deficient in this area, despite what you may think of yourself, right? Maybe not that heavy handed, but there, that needs to be the context of the message at, at some stage in that kind of interaction. So um, just just my my contribution to your anecdote there. Yeah, no, great. Very good point. Um, I think a kind of a natural next step on this conversation, I, I was thinking back, this, this quote stuck with me for whatever reason. I think I was like 14 or 15 years old. 
uh, on the high school wrestling team, we had like a joint practice with another team, and they had this big sign on their wall uh, in their gym that true pride is that which drives us to do our very best, even when no one is looking. Um, and I think it gets back to this idea of, you know, doing the work, putting in the reps at the gym, if we're talking about physical fitness or the, the reps and training for jujitsu or the, the med daily meditation and, and the writing in your journal or studying studying the books before your big sales presentation, whatever it might be, you know, putting in those reps even when no one is looking. Um, and I, as I reflected on that quote, I wanted to switch out the word even with especially. I think I think it's what drives us to do our best, especially when nobody's looking. Um, cause I think that that marries nicely with this conversation of the ego, you know, that the negative connotation of the ego is that if you're only doing it to be seen and you're not doing it to be effective, uh, or not doing it to better yourself, ultimately you're going to get seen out or shown as a, as a phony, uh, eventually, or you're going to find that when the real task arrives, you know, to what Nick was talking about earlier, when, when the whole, whole IT infrastructure is crashing, uh, you might find out you're not actually up to the task the way that you thought you were. Um, so any thoughts on that quote? I mean, that's a good one, right? It, it's about doing uh, the little things every day. And, and I think um, it, that, that's become pretty popular lately, too, with, with the emergence of, of people like Jocko Willink and, and, you know, David Goggins and, you know, reading about Steve Jobs and I don't know if you read the Steve Jobs book that was out about, you know, about a decade ago. And he's talking about uh, working with his father and they're whitewashing a fence. Um, and his father says to him, you know, like, we got to make sure we do the backside just as good as we do the front side. And he's like, well, wh why does that matter? He goes, because I know what the other side looks like. It doesn't matter that anybody else can see it. I know that it's there. Um, and I think when you take that approach and you start looking at things that way it starts applying to other areas of your life right too and some of that might just be like your communication at work maybe you start becoming an over communicator <laughs> over communicator because you just want to be sure that all the things that you're doing um on the back end are being seen on the front end too right and there's other times when we do stuff like that like you said like journaling right uh you, you might journal daily and only go look back at it every now and then. But at that point in time when you're doing it, you're creating a moment of clarity for you. Um, and, and something you know, that you can help build upon later. And that's my two cents on that. I don't know if Brian's got a different viewpoint on it. Yeah, that's a great example, Nick. I, I love that anecdote that you just shared. Um, you know, we touched earlier on kind of this format that I've had for my one-on-ones with direct reports, which is to always make sure that it's their meeting. One thing that I've always kind of baked into, you know, the tail end of those meetings is an open question. How am I doing for you? And, you know, that's a method that I employ to solicit feedback. And, you know, when you're in a one-on-one -on -one situation, if if you don't know your you know direct report well, it'll make them immediately uncomfortable and say, oh no great you know hey everything's awesome <laughs> you know they'll they'll never give you genuine feedback and so sometimes it may take a little bit of additional prompting on your part to say something to the effect of well it, you know in this latest project I know we ran into a, a bump you know on such and such an issue I feel like I could have jumped in sooner. Or, you know, I don't feel like I had your back the way that I should have publicly. And I wanted to check in with you 
did you feel that same way or you know how did you make it feel so so that you can actually solicit some of that feedback and then take that and you know bake it into your own elevation of self-awareness um because you know to to the point of your quote there john um every time that you're engaged in a situation you know on on the interior you know whether or not you're operating at your peak performance you know you know whether or not you're in the middle of a meeting and you're just zoning out and you're like oh my god and someone asks you a question you're like oh yeah you bet <laughs> you know and you're not giving it your all you know you're not you're not truly devoted to that moment in the way that you should be so so i think having having any opportunity to solicit that kind of feedback from those that you work with both above and below you you know i think they're uh, they're equally important opportunities Great. Yeah, that's awesome. I think um, this is a really good discussion. I enjoyed this. And I, I think that what might be a good way to wrap it up, unless either you have anything else you wanted to touch on before I get in a wrap up mode, going once, going twice. Um, I think a, a neat thing, I, there's there's a book as part of my, my private victory uh, or, or private work, rather, not that I have the victories necessarily. I, I like to reread the book uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl every year, and uh, it's a really well-known book, um, but it's about uh, written by a psychologist who was also a concentration camp survivor uh, during World War II. And he has this quote uh, in his book that it can be seen that mental health is based on a certain degree of tension, the tension between what has what excuse me what one has already achieved and what one is still ought to accomplish, or the gap between one, what one is and what one should become. So I apologize to Viktor Frankl for stumbling through that quote, but I really like that idea of the tension between what we are now um, and what we can become. And I think the only real road between those two things uh, is working on those private victories so that one day what we become can be that that walking, talking example of a public victory. So I thought I'd leave us with that uh, as, a, as a kind of a takeaway, hopefully thought-provoking quote. Uh, but I really enjoyed the conversation, guys. I think I, I learned a lot from each of you in this one, so thanks. John, you can't just lob a Viktor Frankl bomb like that and not expect <laughs> some kind of dialogue. <laughs> that's, that's I was trying to wrap it up for us, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. that's... that's <laughs> That's Nick, Nick can too, Nick can edit out my wrapping it up. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll leave that in there. It's fine. It's, it's just us, man. But uh, that, that's that's a great book. I, I recommend if anyone hasn't read that one, uh, you know, do yourself a favor and pick it up. Um, it's it's generally available. You can probably find it in your library as an audio book too. Um, but but like you said, it's it's a great book, has lots of great insights, but it's it's also a tough read because he goes through that, you know, his experience in a concentration camp. Um, and it's it, one more I would add on to that, too, is the uh, Gulag Archipelago, which is kind of along that lines, too. Um, and you kind of see it's a much thicker read. And well, that's actually a, an abridged edition of like four books. Right. I think um, so. It's, it's along those lines. It's a great read, too. So if you enjoy the Victor Frankl book, then you'll probably enjoy that book as well, too. That's all I have to add on that one. Brian, since we're doing books, do you have one to add for that, too? Yeah, I do. But, for you know, first I'll just I'll touch on the Victor Frankl book. So, you know, when I was about um, 20 years old, 
that book helped me through one of the darkest periods of my life. And, um, and a lot of it was because it's such a powerful story about someone who survives because they have the willingness to do so. And, um, and you know, he spends quite a bit of time talking about the psychological characteristics of those who did not survive. It's not that they couldn't, but it's that there was a choice somewhere in there about whether or not to maintain an inner strength to push through just the most um, horrifying set of circumstances anyone could ever find themselves in. So um, I've recommended that book over and over again. In fact, I, I currently do not have a copy of that book because anytime I've interacted with somebody who I know could benefit from reading it, I've always given away a copy and then I'll hit the used bookstore and I'll get another copy. Sometimes I get two copies. And, um, and I've even, you know, I've shared it uh, with my own son when he was going through some of his own challenges, uh, specifically related to being a competitive athlete and kind of the, you know, the mental state of fitness that he found himself in, you know, where he would be his own worst enemy. And, um, and, you know, having read that book, then he was able to take it. And by the time his class got into World War II studies, you know, he was already like out ahead of the group on, you know, an, an understanding of, uh, you know, the importance of the Holocaust. So, um, yeah, so that, you know, in terms of personal transformation, you know, I think there's, I mean, that book, it's, it's just monumental. It's, uh, it's one that's, it's very difficult to top. Um, there is a, a story of personal transformation that I find uh, really fascinating for, for completely different reasons, but um, it has a lot to do with moving someone from a space of n not really having any kind of um, awareness of anything beyond kind of their material existence into having a completely profound change in personality. And that's Robert A. Monroe's book, Journeys Out of the Body, where uh, one of the founders of Cable, um, because he was dealing with a lot of stress as a corporate executive, uh, who did not want to take any kind of um, drugs that would debilitate him, you know, like antidepressants or anything, uh, went to see a psychologist who gave him some progressive relaxation exercises. And through the process of performing those exercises, started having these phenomenal experiences where he found his consciousness outside of his physical body. And so the, that very first book is written in, you know, he's, he's kind of an engineer by background. And so it's got a very engineering kind of approach to it, even though the topic itself might seem very new agey, <laughs> you know, but that, that first book doesn't come off that way at all. And it's a, it's a fascinating read and it's, I think it also opens up a lot of questions just about, you know, the nature of uh, interpersonal transformation. Great. Well, thank you for not letting me wrap it up because uh, that was a lot of really good stuff, <laughs> Brian. I appreciate it. Uh, that was awesome. Thanks. And I, I've also given that book away a number of times, the uh, the Viktor Frankl book. I, I tend to buy it in twos and threes because I know I'm going to run out of them. Um, it's it's really a, a tremendous life life changing book. So good. Thanks. Uh, it's probably one of the most important books of the last century, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, agreed. All right.
Well, are we actually ready to wrap it up now? (laughs) We're wrapping up. Um, So just a little bit of closing here. If you like what you're listening to, just go ahead and um, leave us a review of whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on. Um, We're pretty much everywhere. Uh, Same goes if you're on watching this on YouTube, checking out the video version. Um, Just go ahead and give us a subscribe if you like what you see. Go ahead and comment on the post. Give us a like or something. Uh, We'd like to interact with our audience more. We'd love hearing from you when when we get feedback. If you're looking to connect with us, um, I'm Nick Lozano on LinkedIn. uh, Or I'm Ronan Janitor pretty much on every other platform uh, you fellows want to give where people can find you at. Brian Comerford on LinkedIn, uh, E23, if you really want to find out about my alter ego. Ooh. <laughs> Suspenseful. <laughs> John's <laughs> Well, we talked about ego a lot today. We didn't talk about the alter ego, so that's pretty good. <laughs> but uh, you can find me at John D. Abbott on LinkedIn as well. And we're working on him with other social media platforms. Yeah. we got to get him on more than just LinkedIn. So um, we'll, we'll get him there. We'll get him there. We'll get him there. <laughs> he just got to do one more. But <laughs> with that, we appreciate everybody listening, and we will catch you on the next episode.